we are in a series uh, entitled Join the Adventure. We, I need my clicker. I've left it somewhere. I'm having a problem with the clicker this morning. I've already left it in three different places. Here we go. Um, we are looking at some uh, sort of introductory things or questions that people may well have on approaching the Christian faith. And we're looking at the excitement of what it is to join in with the Christian community and all that we enjoy of the life of God, there are some questions that people may well have along the way. I started two weeks ago by talking about the church, who are we as a community and what's, what are we all about. Didn't Joe Watson do a great job last week, those who are here speaking about the Bible? I really hope that there's been more Bible reading that's gone on this week with the in, wonderful inspiration that she gave last week. We have a change of tack this morning something that's rather different. I get to speak this morning about sex. Uh, I'm clicking. You have to help me, Helen. Even though I have the clicker, it is resisting my will. All it's going to tell you is that it's about sex, so that's not complicated. Um, Do you know what? Those of you that are here um, often will know that often my PowerPoints have got lots of pictures in. This morning is going to be an exception to that. I decided that Googling lots of pictures to include in a talk on sex was unwise and resisted. And there'll be more text. So there's not a lot of pictures to miss out on uh, if that doesn't start working. Um, The questions that we are going to be looking at this morning, in the context of thinking of joining the adventure of the Christian life, what is it like to join the adventure of Christian living as a human being with sexuality? Uh, What is it like, especially if you do not conform to the Christian ideals of celibacy and heterosexual marriage? What's it like to join this adventure? You know, as I was praying for this morning, I felt God speak to me some very specific personal words of revelation. And I'd like to ask one or two people to stand up as I give these. No, I'm just joking. It's all right. I just... I don't, didn't have that at all. I just, you've got to enjoy yourself when you're preaching, don't you? Uh, so, uh, there, are, there are, in fact, a whole load of uh, emotions that surround us, me talking about sex this morning. You know, for some people joining the Christian life, there will actually be shock on discovering that there's any sense in which sex outside marriage is wrong. Increasingly, people just have no, no concept of that and are shocked to discover that there are Christians who believe that. Um, for everyone, there can be a sense that we're quite a long way from grace and love if we start talking about what you can and cannot do, what you may or may not do, what you must and must not do. Where's grace and love gone? And for some, there's a confusion just of understanding why. And we'll hear many times, you know, if I love a person, what else really matters? And confusion that anything else could be relevant. And for those who are Christians, there is often significant embarrassment around not knowing how to explain what Christians have to say in a way that will make sense to people. Indeed, for many Christians, there's such a fear of offending people about 
with saying a Christian thing about sex and sexuality that it's enough for them to keep their whole faith secret. I speak to a number of Christians who, uh, and it's not all people outside the church, it's some of us here, for whom anxiety around what they would say should someone raise the question about Christian sexual morality, it's enough just to keep quiet. As a pastor, I find myself talking about sex more with every passing year. (laughs) There seem to be ever more questions that people want to discuss. Questions. And so I just thought I'd list off some of the questions that I find myself uh, being asked about. Uh, How do I overcome sexual temptation? As a single person, is it okay to live in a mixed-sex house? Is it okay to live in a single-sex house in, that, in a single-sex house if some of my housemates are gay? What if I experience attraction to the same sex? What does that mean for what kind of household arrangement is best for me? How are we to interpret biblical texts that speak of different roles for men and women? What does it mean for a husband to be head of his wife? How do we respond if a married person sleeps with someone else? What are acceptable grounds for divorce for Christians? Can divorcees remarry in church? On remarrying Can a divorced person be a church member? Uh, What about Muslim converts to Christ who have several wives? What do we do with that? What does Galatians mean by saying there are no male and female in Christ? Does that encourage sexual relationships irrespective of biological sex? How do our genetics, upbringing, other experiences, and our choices interact to shape whom we find attractive? How do we we enable gay people to overcome the pain inflicted on them by Christians who have condemned them? How and when should the church repent of its homophobia? or indeed it's transphobia. Is a traditional Christian morality to blame for providing the ideology under which homophobic violence takes place? Are there any moral issues in bending gender norms? Like, is it okay for a guy to wear a dress at home at the weekends if it makes him feel good? noting that the similar question about women wearing trousers was answered long ago. What if my sexual preferences change after I've got married? Or I become more aware of what I've always felt, but wasn't honest about before I got married? What about receiving hormone treatment to facilitate living as the other gender? What do we say to teenagers experiencing gender dysphoria, that is, a profound distress uh, 
Uh, this their sense of gender identity being at odds with the biological sex to which they'd been assigned. How does what we say about gender dysphoria change with children who are not yet pubescent? Or with adults who have long settled their sense of understanding of themselves? Would OCC perform a same-sex marriage? Uh, these questions I... This, Questions that I get asked. Um, which legal rights for gay people should the church support? And are there any that it should oppose? What do we do, or what will we do rather, what will we do when a same-sex couple with adopted children begin to attend the church? Um, those are about half the questions I started out with in my notes. And I decided I ought to cut a few out because you probably got the point by now, uh, which is that there's a lot of questions. So early on in preparing for this morning, I resolved that there was no way that I could answer everything <laughs> that is of interest. And it rem thinking of those questions reminded me that amongst us, there will be very differing experiences very differing concerns, very different questions that are prominent for us, and very different extents to which those questions have been explored and or answered in your minds. In, so um, what I wanted to do was not to try to cover all of those things this morning, because that would simply be unsatisfying. And there's a great danger in talking about sex, well, there's a number, but one is the danger of offending people by talking frivolously or lightly about profoundly uh, important things. I don't want to skim over things that are of great significance to individuals because we can talk about issues and have some sort of academic discussion or debate and, or we can talk about issues, but what God really cares about is people. And what it comes down to is not what do we think about transsexuality, though that, that may be a question that's helpful to ask to get our heads around something, but it only matters because it relates to the lives of people. God does not love uh, having all the right answers. God loves people. And he reveals, God reveals not all of what he knows, but some of what he knows, specifically for the good of people. His word does us good. So I don't want this morning to pretend to touch on everything of significance, but to recognize that we are, as human beings, sexual creatures created that way by God with all kinds of diverse experiences and challenges. Um, the stewards are going to help us. With, it's going to be one of those moments in our lives when bits of paper are useful. Um, because you're going to get a bit of paper that looks like that. And what it does is ask for a little bit of information from you 
what are the areas that you would like to give more time to learning more about? And there's a little list there. And it also asks separately, what ways could work for you to do that? Because as a church, we would like to serve as many people as we can by giving opportunities to explore, discuss, and learn about a Christian view in all of these different areas. And with information about what you think would serve you and what way you think you might best engage with that, that will help those of us that have responsibility for planning events and activities to arrange things that will get at the questions that are of interest to you amongst all the different ones that there are. There is a basket on a table over towards the glass doors. And if you remember at the end of this morning, then you can stick your bit of paper there and that will serve to give uh, us in our planning a much better understanding of what the felt need is uh, for our, our learning as a church. Now, it may be that out of this morning, you have a whole load of uh, thoughts, questions, and things you want to say that would not begin to fit on a piece of paper and are far from satisfied by ticking a couple of boxes. That being so, please get in touch with me in any way that seems fit to you. You can email me, call me, whatever. Um, If you would find that helpful, it may be that depending on what is in your mind and in your heart, that actually you'd find that awfully intimidating and and inappropriate thing to do. Um, And there will be someone else in the church that you find it much more straightforward to, to talk to and to open things up with them. My plea is just that we we talk about what we need to talk about. And we don't sit on frustrations or offense. That we don't stew and think that there's no place to be honest in this community. Uh, we need to be able to talk about whatever is important. That the light would shine on our thinking. And sometimes our thinking will already be a wonderful revelation from God that is a light to shine for others. <laughs> that will do them good to share. So let's, let's be open about these things as much as we can. So having said it's all very, very complicated, <laughs> the next thing I want to do is to simply offer to you what are the headlines of the biblical teaching about sex and sexuality. It will be clear to you that this is not a complete list, And in these headlines, there will even be some things that may prompt questions again. But I don't think I'm saying anything very controversial in the headlines that follow. I think they are the teaching of the church through the centuries, deriving clearly from the scriptures, which have been questioned in various times and in various ways. But there is no other mainstream teaching than the headlines I'm about to share. These are headlines that, as I say, have been questioned here and there. There is no other mainstream teaching that is widely embraced by the church than than the things that I'm about to share. So here we go. 
some biblical headlines on sex and intimacy. Just simply by looking right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, there we read this, that God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in the second creation account, you understand there are two differing creation accounts at the beginning of Genesis. In the other one, which is such a different style of explanation, it also says something about this unity between man and woman. And it says in chapter 2 and verse 24, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and his father, his father and his mother, and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. As you can see on the slide, I've written here, marriage being the lifelong union of a man and a woman with the hope of children is God's original plan for filling the earth with people made in his image. In that, I read from Genesis 2 about becoming one flesh. So the next point to highlight is not only found there, but also in 1 Corinthians 6, that sex joins people profoundly, described as becoming one flesh. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 16, it talks about if you have sex with a prostitute, then you become one flesh with them. The same language of two becoming one is given there. And Jesus talks about that bond, about the uniting of people as something that God does. You say, well, how would the physical act of sex have an impact on my spirit? Well, there's something about the way that God has designed us that when that physical intimacy takes place, there is a soulful and emotional, but also a spiritual dimension to what takes place. There's a profound unifying that goes on, which is something that God intends to be a consequence of that act. That being so, Jesus says in Matthew 19 and verse 6, those whom God has joined, let no one separate. There's an expectation that when this kind, this strength and depth of bond is formed, it's not something then to go about breaking it's not something to be taken lightly. And it's for those reasons that Christians understand that sex belongs in a lifelong union of man and woman, respecting the way in which God has caused sex to function. Such a marriage also shows how God desires to relate to his people. There's this wonderful book in the Old Testament called The Song of Songs, sometimes called The Song of Solomon. And the big issue in its interpretation through the centuries has been, is this 
a love song between a man and a woman about their romantic attachment? Or is it somehow spiritual and about the relationship that we have with God? And the problem with seeing it as a romantic thing is largely, why is it in the Bible then? (laughs) If it doesn't have any spiritual significance, because... 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for our, our righteousness. So, so how is it helping us spiritually? Surely it's more than just looking in on someone else's romantic engagement. The problem with the view of seeing it as somehow to do with God is it gets quite racy, doesn't it, if you've read it? Uh, And the idea that that kind of passion and intimacy could relate to how people relate to God is problematic. It's felt to be out of place. And then in the New Testament, we have a further revelation in which the church, the Christian community, are together described as the bride of Christ. I think often when we reflect on that image of the church as the bride of Christ, we reflect on how God makes us beautiful and clean and presents us well. But you know there's a purpose to being a bride, which is not only to look beautiful, have some photos taken, and then just what go home again. The purpose of being a bride is to form a union. And Jesus has no hesitation in describing himself as the bridegroom and talking of his people as his bride, whom he loves and with whom he desires intimacy. There's not only a wedding table where there's a feast and celebration, there's a chamber in which that union is consummated. So, In that question of what do we do with a song of songs, the widespread understanding now of that seeming dilemma, which way do we interpret this, is to recognize that it's both. And that the marriage relationship is precisely intended to be a wonderful window on a relationship with God and and what that's like. And we see that clearly in Ephesians 5. I've put the reference there on the slide. I'm going to read those few verses. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's a quote from Genesis 2. And then Paul writes, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. He quotes that verse about the union of a man and a woman in a lifelong relationship, which includes a sexual relationship. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
It was Martin Luther who said, if you want to most understand what God is like, go find a good marriage and have a look at it. See something of what God is like displayed. on That's God's intention. And so what that means, well, it means many things. <laughs> One of the things that it means is that the Christian teaching about how people should interact with each other is not only something spoken sort of out of wisdom for helping people to get by. It's not only about our interactions with each other. Christian teaching on the morality of relationships and the God's ideal for relationships reflects an existing heavenly reality. There's something eternal and spiritual which is then put into humanity, which is what Genesis 1 describes as our being made in God's image. Here's another thing. That's a lot of stuff about marriage, isn't it? And you might say, well, is it all about marriage? Well, no. Dedicated singleness is also honored as a dedication to the Lord. The same Apostle Paul who wrote about Christ and the church and the mystery and bigged up marriage, also says this, I would like you to be free from concern. It's very thoughtful of him, isn't it? I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. Do you like that little assumption there? A husband is concerned about how he can please his wife. Just Paul just takes that as red. Doesn't feel the need to explain that to people. He uses that as a launch pad for his, his teaching. Anyway, there we go. Um, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world how she can please her husband. See, it's good. It works both ways. It's a wonderful thing. Um, Paul says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. He goes on to say a few verses later, it is better to be devoted to the Lord and not married because your devotion to the Lord can be purer. But if you, the way he frames it is, if you can't manage that, then get married. It's okay to get married, but it's better for your devotion to the Lord to be expressed in a dedicated singleness. So it's not all about marriage. Sometimes the church seems to be portraying marriage as the ideal of Christian living and leave people thinking, if only I got married, then my life would be fine. Of course, that's not quite true. Even for those who are married, you know, there's sometimes some challenges. Sometimes talk to young, young, I've spoken to some younger adults who have this sort of idea that somehow all of their sexual problems will be resolved by getting married because obviously marriage is a continual sexual nirvana in which all of your fantasies are regularly fulfilled. I mean, sorry. <laughs> uh, I've yet to meet anyone for whom that is an accurate description. In addition to those ideals, the Bible is honest about how human sin 
makes us weak and broken and corrupted. And we feel that, don't we? We know our brokenness. We know that there are achings and longings in us that are unsatisfied and unrealized, and we can't make them better. We're left aching, and we know that we can't do all the things that we have vision to do, that we are limited in our power, and that is our sin at work in us. And that brokenness and corruption touches every part of who we are, including our sexuality. So our sexual attraction, our sexuality, the way in which we conduct ourselves is also broken and corrupted. And again, the scripture is so very honest about that. It's easy to think of heroes of the faith described in the scriptures who were just a right mess in this area. Think of Abraham, the great father, the great father of the faith, who effectively gives his wife into high-class prostitution to save his own skin. Twice. That's not good. And then David, who... Well, I mean, there's quite a few heroes of the faith that were murderers. Moses, Paul. uh, And David was one of them, King David. But David became a murderer in order to cover up his adultery. Never controlled those passions. There's a brokenness and corruption. So the Bible's very honest about that. And so we're given these great ideals, and at the same time, the Bible understands, it reveals that God understands our weakness, and that we live out our lives, not as people who are on the cusp of perfection, about to do everything right, but walking through life with that weakness. And then the wonderful good news of the Christian faith is that we are not left alone to fix ourselves. It's not, now I've made known to you your weakness, sort yourself out, pull your socks up, put your pants back on, no. (laughs) Whatever it may be that you need to do to sort yourself out, No, that's not the dynamic of the good news of the Christian faith. Rather, the good news of the Christian faith is that Jesus came to save us. I've referenced John 10, 10, where Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I could have quoted any number of New Testament verses about God's determination to step into our lives and to be the one that makes the difference and makes us right, that invests his power at work in our lives. Whether, well, whatever our needs are, he promises to come and to be our aid. So the truth is that you don't have to be a saint in order to become a Christian. It's not that way around. You don't have to be a saint in order to become a Christian. In fact, if you think you're a saint, that will probably prevent you becoming a Christian. Because the Christian faith is intended for sinners who know their need of salvation. That's how it works. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. I've said there are some headlines on what the Bible has to say about sex and intimacy. I would be surprised if even in my recounting those, that hasn't raised some questions or just reminded you of how you disagree with some of this. I mean, I, I, I understand that. I talk to you enough. <laughs> we talk to one another enough to know those things. 
Let's take time to talk those things out. And I trust that out of feedback from those bits of paper, that will help us to know how to build something that will help uh, as many people as possible to talk about those things together. But I want to be clear about what has long been mainstream Christian teaching. And I'm confident that I've not put a foot wrong in describing what has long been mainstream Christian teaching. There we are. I talked about uh, the hesitation that we might feel to speak as Christians in, a, in the culture that we live in, which is highly sexualized and with a sexual morality that is very different to the one that I've just outlined. I want to give a few pointers, therefore, for how to handle everyday conversations. I want to suggest to you that there are broadly three kinds of situation in which we might find ourselves in everyday conversation. And the first is with people who are really closed to hearing anything about the Christian faith. And that's probably because they've been hurt by Christians. Uh, the second I'll come to in a moment is there are other people who have a kind of passing interest into the Christian faith. You've got some sort of openness to it. They're not that interested, but there's not angst or difficulty, at least, in a conversation. And then thirdly, there are people who are really seeking spiritual truth, who want to know whatever the truth is, can we please talk about it? I want to find out more about it. And I want to suggest to you that those three sorts of people uh, ought to lead us to talk in three very differing sorts of ways. So firstly, if there are people who are really closed, often because they've been hurt, probably you only get to say one or two sentences anyway. Probably you've got a 10 or 15 second window in which to say anything, and that's probably about it. If you only have 10 or 15 seconds, a couple of sentences, to talk to someone who has been hurt by Christians because of receiving condemnation on account of their sexual uh, behavior or their sexuality, I would take that time, a little bit of time, to apologize on behalf of the church, if need be for its homophobia, and to make it clear that everyone is welcomed and loved at this church, whatever experiences people have had elsewhere. And I wouldn't expect to go further than that. I would hope that somehow that repentance and love would be like balm to someone and begin to open them up to the possibility that there's a different story about Christ and his church other than that it's a hurtful place and a damaging place. And I would be content for that to take place and not feel like, oh, and there's a whole load of other stuff I need to tell you. That's what I would say to people who are closed because they've been hurt. If there are people who are just a bit open, and I imagine I might get four or five sentences into a conversation, I might get 60 seconds to say something, let me tell you what I would want to say given that opportunity. It is this, that Jesus offers both profound acceptance and radical challenge. If people want to understand Christian view of sexual uh, ethics, of sexuality, 
what I would say is, you know, whenever anybody came to Jesus, as described in the Gospels, they always got both an immense welcome and acceptance and the most radical moral challenge you could imagine. People always got both of those. There were different challenges for different people. Christianity is about both profound acceptance and profound challenge. And in God's wisdom, it's the combination of those two things that leads to the greatest personal development and human flourishing. That's what I'd want to say. Say, and that's the framework in which the church looks at sex. And that would probably be enough for that conversation. If I had a little bit longer, I might point out that I understand that challenge without acceptance is stressful and even condemning, and that it won't do only to bring challenge. And I may again have opportunity to express regret for the times when the church has issued challenge without love. If I had time, I might also say that acceptance and embrace without challenge reveals an indifference to someone's future and itself is not the most loving stance to take. You know, I've found that for people who have been damaged by their interaction with a church or who have difficulty considering how um, they as a person, as a person with the sexual experience and the sexuality that they have could be embraced by the church. I think we've, the step that we have found it's actually quite easy to take is to simply embrace people. Say, look, we'll we'll just love you. You You've experienced hurt and difficulty, and you've wondered whether God might love you. There are so, so many people who think, particularly, because I'm gay, God hates me. End of story. And we've learned, I trust, (laughs) I've seen us learning, to extend an embrace and a welcome and say, no, 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 God loves you. You need to know God loves you. But we've sometimes then found ourselves in a (laughs) cul-de-sac, Because having invested all of our focus in saying, no, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, you're welcome, we love you, you're accepted here, be part of our fellowship. And placing the emphasis there, it's then like, how and when is is that challenge going to come? And is it not going to feel like people feel they've been hoodwinked later on? There's a growing number of stories of people in same-sex marriages joining churches like ours in the UK, believing that since there is no discrimination on the ground of sexuality in wider society and they've got married and church believes in marriage, right? They come to church and after six months of being loved suddenly discover that there's something, that there are some people in the church, if not the church as a whole, is disapproving. And that's profoundly painful. So, if we can find ways to say up front, there's a tremendous embrace and there is the most radical challenge. And that's not just for people who are living together without being married. 
It's not just for adulterers. It's not, it's not, it's not aimed at anyone in particular. That's, that's right for all of us. We all step into a, the Christian life and find that the adventure, in large part, is about how we are incredibly embraced and profoundly challenged and changed. That's, how it, that's the dynamic of the Christian life. And we want everybody to experience the same thing, not to be exempt from any part of it. Now, if I were to have a conversation with someone who was genuinely really open to seeing, like, whatever the truth is, I want to know it, I would say, well, why don't we do that? <laughs> we could read the Bible together. We could study something together. If there's someone that loves reading, we could study something together, a relevant book. Probably would want to focus on a book that explains more about Jesus rather than a book that's all about sexual ethics. And then at some point, there's a question to pop. This is really the question that John brought up in speaking about having been a spare part. The question to pop is, do you want Jesus in your life? Or you put it the other way around, do we want, do we want to be in God's plan? But do, do we want a relationship with God? Do we want just to keep talking and trying to understand with our minds or do we want a relationship with the creator God? That's the question that comes at some point. And when that question comes, it changes everything. And that's, what, that's, that's where I'm going to end this morning with an emphasis on where we're trying to get to, all of us, all of the time, is relationship with Christ. So whether you may be just beginning to explore the Christian faith, or whether you are many years mature in the faith, that's the question that faces us all today. Will we let Jesus in? Will we be part of his great plan? This is Holman Hunt's picture of Christ knocking on the door, which we make use of from time to time. A wonderful picture of expresses God's heart towards us. From Revelation 3, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will let me in, I will come in and I will eat with him. That's God's heart towards us. Study alone will not save us. Having all the answers to any number of questions will not save us. The only one who saves us is Christ. And the good news is that he desires to be in our lives. So we're going to break bread. It's going to give us an opportunity to say yes to him. And there will be other prayers that arise from what I've spoken about this morning. But let's not miss the opportunity to welcome him in afresh. Perhaps also to pray for others whom we know that they would welcome him in too and enjoy all the benefits of him living in them.